This is the sound of a metal bridge being washed away by floodwaters in Utuado, Puerto Rico. This bridge was new. It was a replacement for another bridge that was destroyed five years earlier in Hurricane Maria. Since Sunday, Hurricane Fiona has already killed at least two people and caused catastrophic destruction. Millions of people are still without power. Many parts of the island are inaccessible because of flash flooding. And it's still raining. What the governor of Puerto Rico, Pedro Pierluisi, has said is that he estimates there'll be billions of dollars in damages. But the extent of the damage at this point is unknown. Arelise Hernandez is a reporter for The Post. She was there in Puerto Rico right before Fiona made landfall as a Category 1 storm. Wind speed-wise, Fiona was not a big deal. The issue is the rain. I think there are some estimates that by the end of its path through Puerto Rico, Fiona will have dropped up to 37, 35 inches of rain in Puerto Rico. And if you were to compare that to Hurricane Maria, Hurricane Maria dropped 40 inches. For people in Puerto Rico, the aftermath of this hurricane feels like deja vu. And that's also how it felt for our Elise. Last week, she was there in Puerto Rico to report on the anniversary of Hurricane Maria, which made landfall five years ago today. That storm knocked out power on the island for months. And our Elise wanted to know what had changed since then. So five years ago, after Hurricane Maria, we embarked on a project that sought to show people what it was like to live without electricity for an extended period of time. And that resulted in the project Sin Luz, Life Without Power in Puerto Rico. We profiled individuals in two different communities, in Yabucoa on the southeast coast, as well as Utuado, which is a mountainous community. And so I was there to basically reconnect with those individuals that we featured as part of the project and to figure out what their lives were like now, what, what things had improved when things hadn't improved. And what she found was that five years later, even before the arrival of Fiona, much of the island still has not recovered. Driving around Puerto Rico, there are still quite visible signs that things aren't exactly where they need to be. There are still entire street intersections where the streetlights don't work or Maria's rains chewed off pieces of asphalt that are still gaping holes, or you drive through certain government structures in the various pueblos, there's still twisted metal and pieces of concrete strewn about these buildings that you would have hoped by now would have been reconstructed. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, September 20th. Today, we talk about why reliable access to electricity is still a problem for Puerto Rico so many years after Hurricane Maria, and what lessons have and have not been learned since then. So, Arlise, you went back to Puerto Rico to talk to some of the people who you met in the aftermath of Maria. Tell me, who were some of those people? 
Well, one of those individuals was a teacher at the time, now retired teacher, Maria Ortiz Piruet. Hello. She lives in a barrio in a mountainous community of Utuado. At the time, during five years ago, she was absolutely heartbroken by some of the damage that had been done on her school, but also in the wake of of the storm, which is that a lot of people left Puerto Rico and with it, a lot of school children. Her class size had continued to diminish up until her actual retirement about two years ago. And they've seen schools close across the island archipelago. What Maria is saying here is that she hopes the government can have more of a commitment to the young families of Puerto Rico. Maria's frustration with the government is that they're not creating enough incentives for young families to stay in Puerto Rico, whether it's, you know, a lack of jobs or people who have studied a trade but can't find their way into the industry because of any number of reasons, whether it's partisanship or the availability of those jobs. It's really keeping people, young people in particular, young families with children, from building lives in Puerto Rico. And that's a frustration for her as a teacher, as well as a mother, because her son, Jesus Ortiz Mejias, is struggling. He's now 22. He travels more than 30 miles every day to work, and he's studying to be an electrician right now. But he's really having a hard time finding the kind of employment that would render the wages that would be livable for him to stay in Puerto Rico. These are families that have lost hope in Puerto Rico, that feel pushed and having to emigrate outside of the United States, that there there seem to be no other choices for them. So to Maria's point of, you know, what, what's left? Like, what are the other options other than leaving or going somewhere else for other opportunities? How many people have actually left Puerto Rico since Hurricane Maria? So large-scale emigration from Puerto Rico started before Maria, about five years before Maria. And according to U.S. Census estimates, the population is contracted by about 11.8 percent. So we're talking about 700,000 people Mm. have emigrated uh, and moved to the United States for the most part. That's astounding for a place that has about 3.1, 3.2 million people. Not to mention the fact that, you know, more than 3,000 people died after Hurricane Maria as well. Yeah. I'm curious what your sense is of what that does to a place, how it changes a place when you have 11 percent of the population leaving in a pretty short period of time. That means your your labor force, your your working population is leaving. There are statistics that show and that in less than 10 years, most of Puerto Rico's residents, the majority of its residents will be senior citizens. These are people who are, for the most part, not working age anymore. They're not contributing to the economy in the same way. They're not consuming resources in the same way either. But essentially, that puts the government, a government that's trying to recover from financial crisis, a government that's trying to recover from a natural crisis, 
unable to generate the kind of economic activity that would put it on the upswing. Losing population like that is extremely detrimental to Puerto Rico's overall recovery. So you mentioned that Maria's son, Jesus, is setting to become an electrician. What are the challenges that he is coming up against in trying to become a professional and trying to help this community right now? Well, right now he works a minimum wage job during the day and takes classes in the evening. And in both those cases, he's essentially out of the house for 11 hours a day trying to make this all work. The median income in Puerto Rico is about $21,000. So that's $20,000 less than the poorest state in the United States, which is Mississippi. So we're talking about wages that are barely let people get by. For example, the price of a gallon of milk is almost at $7, and the price of bread is about $3. So essentially buying just milk and bread would put you above minimum wage, the hourly minimum wage in Puerto Rico. So it's the cost of, of living that's been really difficult while trying to study for a profession. And why is it that he wants to become an electrician? Why is this something he's so passionate about? So después del huracán que me gradué y eso me cambió la vida bastante. Jesús told me that his life changed with Hurricane Maria. Nosotros estuvimos como nueve ocho meses sin luz. His particular home, his barrio, his community was out of electricity for almost eight months. And that was really difficult for him. And knowing just how to do basic things to try and re-energize a home is something he wished he had had during that time. So Hurricane Maria, in many ways, inspired his, you know, vocation. Power seems like it's just the recurring issue here of how difficult life is when there isn't reliable access to power. Can you talk a little bit about what has been happening with these power challenges and and what's the state of the power grid across Puerto Rico? Okay, so... For years and years and years, the public utility in Puerto Rico, known by its English acronym, PREPA, had control of all parts of the electrical system. But over years, through corruption, through politics, it ran up a debt of almost $9 billion. And this became completely untenable. It drove the financial crisis in Puerto Rico. And politicians since then have been wanting to privatize the system, thinking, you know, if we have a private contractor that's running the system, it will operate better, right? And outside of these you know, political constraints and issues. So the government of Puerto Rico entered a contract with Luma Energy, which is a U.S.-Canadian consortium that is in charge of now transmission and distribution of electricity in Puerto Rico. They took over in June of last year. And if you were to ask their officials, they've made vast improvements to the power grid. They've invested federal dollars into hardening the system, into fixing whatever was broken. But the problem has been that the reliability of that service was so badly damaged during Hurricane Maria and continues to be a source of intense consternation in Puerto Rico. The power goes out two to three times, if not four, 
during the week. And this actually happened while I was talking to Jesus and a rainstorm came. Whenever the rain comes, they can expect the power to go out. Jesus is mentioning that whenever in the news talks about rain coming, people try to get prepared, beginning water, gasoline, everything they need. And in the middle of him talking about all these supplies, Gasolina. <laughs> the power went out. And he sort of transitioned from there to say, it's for moments like these that we have to prepare. After the break, we'll talk about why recovery from Hurricane Maria has been so slow and what that's like for the local officials who have to answer for the things that aren't fixed. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. What has it been like for public officials who are responsible for having to rebuild after Hurricane Maria? What have these last five years been like for them? For public officials, particularly local mayors who are held responsible and accountable for what doesn't and does happen in their community, it's been extremely frustrating to try to navigate the bureaucracy around uh, federal recovery dollars. Part of what makes it so difficult for those local leaders is that their citizens every day are seeing what's not being done. So every time someone drives past a bridge and sees that it's broken into pieces and incomplete, it's the mayor who has to answer for that. El alcalde es el responsable de todo. El alcalde es el responsable. One of those people is the mayor of Yabucoa, Rafael Surrillo Ruiz. La frustración eh, sigue igual eh, luego de cinco años que hemos estado nosotros experimentando la, la, la devastación de este desastre. Yabucoa Mayor Rafael Surrillo Ruiz is extremely frustrated at the pace of recovery. His community was one of the first to submit all their projects and all the documentation to FEMA for things like a new municipal office, a new government center, uh, road paving, the reconstruction of their stadium, their baseball stadium in the middle of town. And though they feel like they've done their part, navigating the bureaucracy and the actual disbursement of that money has been really slow. Pero que ese dinero no llegaba a donde realmente hace falta para que se pudiera hacer la obra. Some of that slowness stems from the additional restrictions that the Trump administration placed on Puerto Rico. From their perspective, it was necessary because of fears of corruption. In other ways, it severely slowed down the ability of these communities to access those funds quickly, to pay contractors to do the work. Or at least what you're describing in some ways is really surprising for me to hear because there was so much money that FEMA had 
earmarked for the specific purpose of building new infrastructure in Puerto Rico, repairing what was broken after Hurricane Maria. And I mean, I'm sure everyone is frustrated that that what has happened in the last five years has fallen short from what a lot of people expected or hoped for. Yeah, the way that this is ordinarily supposed to work, we're talking about billions of dollars, billions of taxpayer dollars that were, you know, assigned or at least allocated and set aside for Puerto Rico. And in particular, public assistance dollars that are specifically for public infrastructure, roads, bridges, public buildings, recreational facilities, that kind of thing. So the money's there. The issue has been moving it from being allocated to being assigned, which means that, you know, FEMA has accepted, you know, your proposal. That time in between, things change, right? So if you have a road that's been deteriorating since Hurricane Maria, the repairs might have been one thing in 2018 and may have represented one cost. But over five years, that road has continued to deteriorate. And so those repairs become that much more expensive, not the least of which is the issue of inflation, right? So the materials to be able to repair these roads increases as well. So what happens is for a town like Yabucoa, they submitted an initial assessment for how much it would cost to repair the road then and there. Those costs rise and FEMA's like, well, okay, your cost estimate is off. So then they have to go back to the drawing board. And getting from past that stage has been the source of frustration for many of these communities. And then they get to the point where, okay, finally, the money is dispersed, right? It's going, they can start spending money to start doing design and to contract the engineers and whatnot. That part is just starting. We're talking about a fifth Mm. of the money that has been allocated for these types of projects has been spent. Yo quisiera que la gente de Estados Unidos sepa que somos ciudadanos americanos también. Que el dolor que se siente en Estados Unidos se siente igual aquí. Mayor Surrillo Ruiz is talking about how unequal the treatment feels when citizens of his own community drive by a bridge and don't see any progress on its restoration or its repair. And that's frustrating because he wants the American people, those who live in the United States, to know that they're also American citizens, that each one of these unfinished projects represents an open wound for people whose lives were marked by Hurricane Maria. And that restoration, recuperation, means much more than, you know, just putting things as there were, but healing the pain of that destruction. So this was a conversation you had with Mayor Surya Ruiz last week. Have you talked to him since Hurricane Fiona hit? Well, I just got off the phone with him, and the stress in his voice was obvious. He has gone four days straight now preparing and responding to the hurricane and its aftermath, and uh, he's still frustrated. Vengo ahora de visitar la urbanización Jaime C. Rodríguez, donde muchas personas lo perdieron todo, muchas familias lo perdieron todo dentro de sus casas. 
So Mayor Surrillo Ruiz is dealing with a, a flooding, a major flooding situation in his community. They've had to perform rescues over the past 24 hours. Ayer fue impactante la escena que tuvimos que vivir. About 200 families have been impacted by some of the flooding. Donde tuvimos que tirarnos dentro del agua para poder rescatar eh, viejitos que están solos, encamados que tuvimos que sacarlos de sus camas, literalmente. He talked about having to rescue bedridden elderly folks in his community, literally picking them up from their beds as the water is rising in their homes. They're without water service. They are without power. In many ways, it, this is not different from what it was like uh, during Hurricane Maria. But in many other ways, it's different. This is a rain event. It's, according to him, flooding in a way that he's never seen in Yabucoa, wow. and it's washed out several bridges in his community. There's still parts of Yabucoa that he has not reached yet. What strikes me in hearing this is that, I mean, Hurricane Fiona was not like a once-in-a-lifetime storm. This was a Category 1 hurricane, which is a relatively normal thing for a Caribbean island to experience. And so I wonder what it says about the state of things in Puerto Rico that even a storm like this is really putting infrastructure to its limit and that infrastructure is failing in these kinds of circumstances. Well, I think it says a lot about the vulnerability of communities that are experiencing these disasters one behind the other. I mean, it's a story about climate change. It's a story about how slow the recovery process uh, from a government and bureaucratic standpoint it is. I think I'm curious about the kinds of things that did work what lessons were learned, what things they did differently to respond to this crisis that were a result of having experienced awful things during Maria. Also, what's missing, right? Like, why why did the recovery process take so long to dig a little deeper into why certain things, you know, weren't in place, why certain bridges weren't reinforced? And so I think there are a lot of big questions about this and, and the way that we need to think about disaster and respond to it are relevant to the rest of the country and dealing with more and more natural disasters. Arlise, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Arlise Hernandez is a reporter for The Post. Ted Muldoon produced and mixed this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.